Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Adam Levine with Joe Lockhart. Katie's off this week. Our guest today was the fourth secretary of the Department of Homeland Security from December 2013 until January of 2017. Before that, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. From 1998 until 2001, he was the general counsel of the Air Force. And from February 2009 until December 2012, he was the general counsel of the Department of Defense under Secretary Robert Gates. Jay Johnson, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you very much, Adam. So, Mr. Secretary. Please call me Jay. Jay. I want to start literally at ground zero. This week is the 18th anniversary of the September 11th attack. It's amazing that 18 years have gone by. But I want to start with your uh, memory and experience on that day. Well, first of all, September 11th happens to be my birthday. September 11th, 2001 was my 44th birthday. We lived then and we live now in Montclair, New Jersey. And as was noted, served in the Clinton administration as general counsel of the Air Force. I worked in the Pentagon, the E-Ring, left office January 2001. And back our permanent home in Montclair, New Jersey, and back at the law firm in New York that I have spent my private practice life in, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison at 1285 Avenue of the Americas, right around the corner from where we are now. And I drove to work that morning. Sometimes I'd take a bus. I drove. I parked at my usual garage at 52nd and 8th, came into work. I typically come in early. And I remember first and foremost the weather that day. It was a beautiful early fall, late summer day, no humidity, crystal clear blue sky. And planning to go home, have dinner, a quiet dinner with my family, which I typically did for my birthday. And I saw almost everything with the naked eye. I did not see the first plane hit. I heard someone say, as I was sitting at my desk in my law office, a small plane hit the World Trade Center. I looked out the window and I saw the building in flames. I saw, I believe, the second plane hit. I was going back and forth between the TV and looking at it live through my window. So I saw the second plane hit. And then the thing that I will never forget is seeing the first tower collapse. And it was a moment in my life when my brain literally did not believe what my eyes were seeing. Because for a New Yorker, the Twin Towers were etched into the skyscrape of our city. It's like a smile. You have the same dental work your whole life. And to see that tower collapse, I kept wanting to believe that the tower would emerge out from behind the smoke, and it did not. And then the second one collapsed. And it was a moment much like May 1st, 2011, the day we got bin Laden, when time seemed to, to move slowly. So by 3.30, when there was nothing more to do, I had offered help donating blood. There wasn't really a need for it given the nature of the tragedy. I drove home. I went back to my car. And between the time I drove to work that morning and the time I got in my car and drove across the George Washington Bridge, the world had changed. And it felt like a very different city and a very different country. And I remember as I got onto the bridge and all the traffic was outbound, it felt like a war zone. And my life changed. And out of that day, frankly, was my own commitment to national security. And 15 years later, 14 years later, I ended up running a Department of Homeland Security that did not exist at the time. So let's talk about the Department of Homeland Security. It is a direct result of the September 11th attack. Talk a little bit about the department. I, I don't know that people um, understand the vast uh, scope of the work there, about what it does, how it does it, how well it's doing. Well, sadly, 
in the public mind, I think most people would associate the Department of Homeland Security right now with the immigration mission uh, because it's been so controversial in this administration. DHS was formed in 2002 by an act of Congress in the wake of 9-11, as you noted. It is the third largest department at the cabinet level of our government after the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs, some 230,000 personnel, 22 components. It's the third largest department. It is by far the most decentralized in the its mission set and the different cultures that exist. And it covers everything from the immigration border security mission to aviation security, cybersecurity, port security, maritime security, response to natural disasters, the Secret Service, which includes the protection mission as well as financial crimes, training of federal law enforcement at uh, FLETC, uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in, in Georgia, and detection and prevention of chemical, biological, nuclear threats to the homeland. So it's a very big department with a lot of missions. And people ask me, is it too big? I say no. Uh, my previous experience was in the Department of Defense, which is multiples larger than DHS. But its bureaucracy does not have the maturity of the Department of Defense. And I spent much of my time as secretary simply building out that organizational structure to try to make it a, a better run place. But it's a department with many, many important missions. I used to remind people, and I remind people now, that it goes far beyond simply regulating our borders and deporting people. It's your day-to-day -day security in the homeland, uh, land, sea, and air, and in cyberspace. So it came out of a terrorist act here in the United States. Uh, so in addition to immigration, I think a lot of people associate it with protection against some threat from abroad. With, I guess, 17 years now to reflect and with your personal experience, there has not been something on the scale of September 11th. Um, there have been some lone wolf uh, attacks, but have have we beaten that kind of threat? That's a very important question. So when I talk about terrorism, I talk about terrorist-directed attacks and terrorist-inspired attacks. 9-11 was the biggest example of a terrorist-directed attack where a terrorist organization – Al-Qaeda, in that case, directed a group of operatives to infiltrate our country and launch a large-scale attack. DHS was formed on the assumption that terrorism was something that was extraterritorial and would infiltrate our borders into our homeland. Therefore, the way to deal with terrorism is to regulate all the different ways in which somebody could enter our country. Since then, the model has become, in my view, outdated. First, here's the good news. Our intelligence community does a much better job of connecting the dots. And I know this from being a consumer of intelligence while I was in office, such that I believe that if there were a plot to launch a large-scale attack, I'll dare to say this, on the homeland from overseas – we'd have very, very strong indications of it and would probably be able to prevent it. Now, some people would be quick to point out that we had indications of the 9-11 attack beforehand, but we failed to connect the dots. Our intelligence community does a much better job of that now. In the meantime, our government, through multiple administrations, has done a good job of taking the fight to the terrorist, where they train, where they try to set up caliphates, where they live, uh, where they recruit. And so in the Obama administration first term, building off of what the Bush administration had done, we took the fight to terrorist operatives and organizations overseas in places like Yemen, Somalia. And while I was general counsel of the Department of Defense, I was the senior legal official who had to sign off on a lot of these counterterrorism operations where we took the fight to them and took out a lot of really bad guys plotting bad things on our homeland. And the, re the result of which is that in dealing with the al-Qaeda threat, the al-Shabaab threat, and most recently the Islamic State threat overseas, we have 
made considerable progress 18 years later on large-scale terrorist-directed attacks. Where we're challenged now in this new phase are what I refer to as terrorist-inspired attacks, where somebody living here in this country already is inspired by something they read or see on the internet to radicalize in secret and carry out an act of mass violence, a shooting by themselves because of something that they have seen that was originated by the Islamic State. And we dealt with this a lot while I was Homeland Security Secretary in 2015, 2016. Now we are dealing with the threat of that, but also the very real threat, the day-to-day threat of mass violence, violence launched by somebody inspired by right-wing extremism. So the terrorist threat to our homeland has evolved considerably over the last 18 years since that day in 2001. And I used to always encourage my people, don't plan for the last terrorist attack, plan for the next one. So we have to always anticipate and see the evolutions. The big debate beginning in 2002 was balancing protecting people against terrorism versus people's civil liberties. We now have 18 years to reflect on uh, that debate. How have we done? Another good question. I came to the realization while in office that the essential job of someone in national security, whether you're the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Secretary of Defense, the Director of the FBI, the Director of the CIA, is to do what you just said. It's striking a balance between our basic physical security and the preservation of our values and our liberties in this country. And that those in national security are the guardians of one as well as the other. When I'm in national security, I'm the guardian of your physical security, but I'm also the guardian of your civil liberties. And push too far in one direction, you eviscerate the other. And so there have been periods over the last 18 years when we are in a high threat, high anxiety environment where we might push the needle too far in one direction and have to recalibrate out of uh, a desire to protect our physical safety. And so striking that balance is fundamentally what we do in national security. So hopefully for our listeners, we've established what a big job the Director of Homeland Security is, given the scope of it. A lot of the Obama administration, I think, can be described as stable and stability. I I think we had two secretaries of uh, Homeland Security during the Obama administration. I think before the first year was how we had two (laughs) in the Trump administration. We have a situation. Incidentally, great trivia question. Do you know who President Trump's first Secretary of Homeland Security was? Hold on. Let me check Google. (laughs) You stumped me. It's actually me. I oh, was the designated yeah. survivor right. on yes. January 20, yeah. Yeah. 2017. So I was uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security for President Trump for seven hours and 32 minutes. And and he drove you out. You were the first one. I was the first out. one to resign. He resigned right. on principle. That's right. There we go. John Kelly was there for 192 days. Elaine Duke, 128 days as acting. Kirsten Nielsen for a year and three months. We now have another acting uh, um, There's uh, There are actings in just about every senior position yeah. in the department now. How does this impact their people's ability to do their jobs? Is the homeland less safe because there doesn't seem to be any stability or leadership at the top? Well, I won't I won't say that we're less safe because of all of the actings, all the vacancies, but it does hinder the department's ability to function effectively and it does hinder the executive branch's ability to function effectively because When you have an acting in a Senate-confirmed job, that person is going to be, by nature, more cautious, more conservative, more risk-adverse. And this president seems to like that. And he almost said as much, I like actings. It's sort of – Flexibility uh, he liked. Well, it's it's like a tryout for the job. And I don't believe that that – should be where a very senior presidential appointee should be. When you have Senate confirmation, and I know this from personal experience, having been through it three times, there's a certain amount of job security that attaches to the job. You feel after going through the process that you're accountable 
of course, to the president who appointed you, but to a degree also the United States Congress. You're also, to a degree, accountable to the people who just voted to confirm you. And such a person, in a political sense, cannot be discarded easily. And so in that environment, those in Senate-confirmed positions, uh, I believe, have as part of their responsibility providing the president with their best and most honest advice and telling him things he doesn't want to hear. And I'm afraid that this president is not getting that, and I'm afraid he doesn't want that. And I know from personal experience, when you have to make a tough decision, getting the best advice from seasoned, experienced people not afraid to tell the truth is fundamental. When I had to make a tough call, let's say, you know, giving the legal sign-off for a drone strike when I was at DOD, if the eight people I counted on for advice all nodded their head, yes, I said, something's wrong here. Come on. Doesn't somebody want to make the contrary argument? Uh, and when I had before me a spirited discussion about an issue, when I felt like I had heard all the angles, that was the best context in which to make a decision. And I know President Obama appreciated that as well. Yeah, I, I know from my experience, uh, and this may sound strange, but I, I think, you know, with President Clinton, I said once a day, either you can't do that or you can't say that. And he'd, he'd look at me and say, what do you mean I can't say that? And you'd say, you can't say that because it's either not true or it's way more complicated than that. And yes. yeah, he would look at you and say, okay, I got that. And so I won't say that. It feels like in this administration, either no one says it or the president doesn't care. He, he wants reality to bend to his will rather than his will to bend to reality. Let me give you the Jay Johnson version of what you just described in the Clinton White House. I get up at 5 a.m., and start looking at my phone, looking at the news, and I'd see something that really made me angry, something that leaked, a new IG report, something bad happened, and I'd be very upset. And before I get to work at 6.15, 6.30, my intel book's on the desk, and I all worked up about something. And before I even take my jacket off, I typed out a statement, something I want to release publicly. That story in the Washington Post is false, and here's why. And I type it, and then I wait. For the five or six people, including my public affairs person, my ledge affairs person, my chief of staff, my deputy, they'd all come in and I'd have five copies sitting in the printer. I'd hand it out and I'd say, here, read this. I want to issue this. And they would have the reactions like you just described. You can't say that. You can't really do this. You can't really do that. I would calm down. And by 11 a.m., I forgot what I was angry about because I moved on to six other things. But sometimes... Sometimes I would not let them talk me out of something. Even, okay, I got this. I understand the implications. But I'm going to do it anyway. And that might have been one in 10. But going back to what you asked, I think that this president believes that he knows best and that it was his instincts that got him to where he was. And therefore, his instincts are superior to everybody else's. And in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to let Trump be Trump. And he probably has validators who he talks to who say that to him. And you could tell he spent the first couple of months, maybe the first year or so in office being talked out of things, and he's gotten frustrated with that. And so he has in place now people around him who were largely enablers who, uh, so far as I can tell from the outside, you never really know what goes on inside – are, are not seeking to dissuade him from his instincts, but are largely acting on them. So last week, one of DHS's more public responsibilities is disaster relief. We had a situation where the president of the United States uh, made a statement uh, and then spent six or seven days trying to defend that statement, including taking a weather service map and using a Sharpie to include a state, uh, the state of Alabama, uh, in well, the, it, according to him, we don't know who drew that circle around the state of Alabama with the right. Sharpie. But the Washington Post now has several sources that say it was the president. Okay. Uh, so. so that in and of itself is a story. The fact that there are so many people in his inner circle yes. who are willing to tattle on him. Who have kind of thrown up their hands and right. uh, said, let Trump be Trump, but I'll be glad to tell you what he did. Yeah. Um, right. How important is it 
for public officials to tell the truth as part of keeping the public involved? And is there some sort of meta collapse of faith in government that's going to bite us back sometime in the future? Very and yes. So it is very important for public officials to be candid. I think the public recognizes when it's hearing the truth, even though they might not always understand it fully, I think people recognize when their leaders are telling them the truth. I think it's particularly important in matters of public safety, homeland security, to tell the truth without scaring people. My approach to informing the public about a threat is to say, we have reports of X, and it always quickly followed it up with, and, and not, not just speculation, but credible reports of X. Now, here are the 10 things your government is doing about it. And then toward the end, say, and we encourage you to continue to go to public events, public gatherings, public places for the holiday this upcoming weekend. And people appreciate that and they get it. And they know that you cannot eliminate all risk in a free and open society. What people, I think, react badly to is when you try to intellectualize it by saying there's a threat out there, but there's a greater chance mathematically that you will be killed by slipping in a bathtub. People don't want to hear that from people who are there to protect them because they get that. They want to know what you're doing about it. And so that was my approach without unduly scaring people and creating anxiety. I believe that the erosion in trust and faith in our government probably began following the Kennedy assassination into the Vietnam Watergate era. And you you just look at polls that indicate during the Eisenhower years, people had faith that their government would do the right thing, 70% of the public. And what they were telling you was the truth. And what they were telling you was the truth. With the erosion in trust and confidence now, that has led to several things. First of all, way, way more scrutiny by the press of public officials' actions, motives, intentions, way more skepticism. We have that now on steroids in the current administration. What's interesting, despite the collapse in trust and faith in our government, and now I'm referring back to not just you know, the current administration, but modern times generally, if you look at it mission by mission, issue by issue, at least a couple of years ago, something like, I might get this a little bit wrong, something like 70% of people still had faith and trust in the government's doing the right thing when it came to emergency response. Uh, and I give Craig Fugate, the previous administrator of FEMA under President Obama, a lot of credit for restoring that after Katrina. People still had faith in our military and they still had faith in disaster response. I don't know whether you'd get the same results today after what we've been through in Puerto Rico and other places. We were talking about the president and the liberties uh, he takes with the truth, so I want to put a couple of them to you. He has talked repeatedly about how the family separation uh, policy of his administration was something he inherited. And if that was true, it would have been something that you had something to do with and helped administer. Tell us what the truth is. That is not true. About 787 fact checkers have told us that is not true. Uh, I have said that publicly a number of times. Here are the facts. The facts are that there was no policy in the Obama administration to separate families. There just was not. Did it ever happen on occasion? Probably yes. If there was some doubt about the familial connection or there was some safety or health issue, would we separate a parent from a child for those isolated reasons? Yes, probably. But there was no policy or practice I want to make this very clear, to separate families. And the reason you know that to be true is because if we had done that, there would have been a hue and cry, and there would have been such a loud controversy if we had done that, that 
you could Google it now and find reference to it from 2014, 2015, 2016. So, and you will not find such a thing. So we had no such policy or practice. Had such a policy or practice been recommended to me, I have full confidence I would have said, no, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go this far. We have the responsibility to enforce immigration laws, but we're not going to do this because I just could – I'd been to the border enough to see women and children crossing the border, women and children in border patrol holding stations. And I could not ask someone to take a baby out of his or her mother's arms. I couldn't do that. We hear a lot about cruelty being the point when it comes to Donald Trump. Is there any policy basis that would lead you to believe that highlighting cruel behavior would deter someone from seeking political asylum? Well, let's start with this. If you look at the numbers of apprehensions on the southern border and you look at the numbers from last summer, 2018, during the zero tolerance policy, family separation practice, it had very little deterrent effect and then look at the numbers this summer, which are the highest they've been in years. So I have two comments. First is, I learned this the hard way. You can do certain things in the midst of a spike to change enforcement policy and make a big deal about it, publicize it for what Border Patrol immigration experts call consequence delivery. But it will only have a short-term effect at best. So long as the underlying push factors in Central America persist, the numbers will always revert back to their longer-term numbers. And so an illustration of that is when President Trump took office, almost immediately the numbers dropped off dramatically simply because of his anti-immigration rhetoric. He had not built a single additional mile of wall or hired a single additional Border Patrol agent. This, the numbers fell off dramatically because – he just took office and people were scared off for a while. And for a while, he could say that numbers are the lowest they've been in years during 2017. And then they crept up to their longer term trends in 2018. Uh, they got frustrated. They wanted to deliver a consequence. And so they, they embarked on the zero tolerance policy, which was a disaster. It had almost no deterrent effect because the numbers went way higher following that period. What this administration is doing, they believe that deterrence prevents illegal immigration. Deterrence by itself will not prevent illegal immigration. So long as people are making the judgment to flee a burning building in Central America, they're desperate. But the other issue is what what this crowd seems to be doing is they want to take deterrence to a whole new level on steroids where they seem to want to make it so horrible to come here that they'll scare people off. And that is the mindset in conditions of confinement and deterrence. And as long as the underlying conditions exist in Central America, there's no level of deterrence you can impose that will prevent people from leaving. And that's why we have to invest in addressing the underlying causes. We started in that in 2016. And the level of funding for that has been going in the wrong direction. You're Talking specifically about aid to the to the Central American Something countries. Something called the yeah. Alliance for Prosperity. We started with an investment to Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador in 2016 of $750 million, which was a drop in the bucket, frankly. And since then, the numbers have been going down. And then earlier this year, President Trump suspended that aid altogether, which is the exact wrong thing to do. And the reason I know that is when I talk to DHS people still there today, they will tell you that the little bit we were beginning to invest was beginning to make a difference. So the coffee market in Guatemala has collapsed because of the drought. But through that aid, they were more effectively helping local farmers get their coffee to the market. And suspending that not only goes in the wrong direction, but it also sends a message of hopelessness to these countries such that they're incentivized even more to flee. So I'm going to invite you to be as candid as you'd like to be here with this next question. Okay. You're sitting in your office, you're running the third largest bureaucracy uh, in the United States government, and you watch this guy who used to be on TV uh, going around talking about building a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. What was your reaction to that? It's a bumper sticker. It was a you know nice rallying cry. 
recognized that then, and hopefully most of the American public recognizes that now. Enough of the American public bought it that he's president. Well, did they buy it or they they'd simply vote for him because they recognized that he's a disruptor? I think most people would say, no, I didn't really think he was going to get the government of Mexico to pay for the wall, but this is a guy who's going to break a lot of glass, and that's what I want in Washington. No, I didn't. I didn't take that seriously. Um, the thing I did react to was in cabinet secretaries in general stay out of politics. Don't comment on what candidates say. There was one instance where I felt like I had to. That was the announcement of the Muslim ban. December 2015. It was right after the attack in San Bernardino. And at the hour he made that announcement, I was at a mosque. And I was holding a press conference because I wanted to go to this mosque right after the San Bernardino attack. And a reporter asked me about this comment. And I couldn't believe that a candidate for president would say we should ban people from this country based on their religion. So I was very careful and I had to see it to believe it. So I reverted to my standard line about I don't comment on what the candidates say and we have to build bridges and not burn bridges. And then I decided after looking at what he said, and I remember leaving this mosque, somebody said to me in my ear, aren't you going to denounce what Mr. Trump said about us? And I decided I had to. So the next day I was in an interview with Andrea Mitchell, MSNBC, and I very specifically and pointedly said that when a candidate, a major candidate for president takes the position that we should ban people from this country based on their religion, those of us in and this goes back, Joe, to what we were saying earlier. Those of us in homeland security and national security have a responsibility to denounce that proposal, that statement. The statement in and of itself was, in my judgment, a setback in our homeland security efforts to build bridges to communities from which terrorist organizations are seeking to recruit and that we needed to bring them closer, not drive them away. Uh, I'm going to ask you two different questions here. One I think is pretty easy and one, one is really hard. So I'll start with the easy one, uh, the politics of immigration. To casual observers, it feels like the Republicans uh, are arguing for build the wall, keep everybody out. No one else comes in. We're full. The Democrats are for let's decriminalize uh, undocumented. It's coming across the border. Let's abolish ICE. Is there any common ground politically to try to get to a solution. And the harder part is, what is the solution from well, a policy point of view? As recently as six years ago, there was common ground. We got comprehensive immigration reform passed through the Senate by a vote of 68 to 32. That's a lot of Republicans with a lot of Democrats who exercise the political courage to embrace comprehensive immigration reform. That environment is lost right now. And we're just standing in our, our extreme corners, screaming and throwing rocks at each other. First, on decriminalization, as you probably know, I jumped into this debate a couple of months ago. And what I was reacting to was the thought that we would decriminalize illegal migration and that we would deprioritize sending people home who are apprehended at the border. You do that. You're going to have multiples of what we have now because you're basically sending the message, we don't take border security seriously. You can't tell a border patrol agent, I'm arresting you, welcome to this country, and as long as you don't commit a crime, we won't send you back. If that's the message in Central America, then we'll never be able to solve this problem and we'll never have a secure border. Likewise, if you send the message globally that we are decriminalizing illegal migration, you're sending the message that we're not taking border security seriously. And the smugglers who encourage illegal migration react to this and encourage it based upon the messages that we send. Comprehensive immigration reform, solving what people on the right and the left want requires compromise, requires action from Congress. To have action from Congress, you need bipartisanship. To get bipartisanship, you need compromise. And it used to be the case that there was a broad consensus that to do anything in this space, you had to address several issues that both the right and the left want. So on the left, we generally want DACA, taking care of the dreamers, a path to citizenship for those who've been here for years and pass a background trek. And on the right, people want more border security. 
Both those things can be accomplished. They are not inconsistent with each other. So long as politicians are willing to recognize, are willing to exercise the political courage to leave their political comfort zones. Right now, everyone finds it in their interest to just stay in their political comfort zone and talk about how evil the other side is or how reckless they're being. And so, Joe, immigration was, while I was in public office, the most difficult issue I wrestled with. Uh, and I wrestled with some pretty difficult ones. Drone strikes, Guantanamo Bay, gays in the military, cybersecurity, natural disasters, which we talked about. Immigration was the toughest issue because it is a, an overly politicized issue. It's excessively emotional. It's also hard from a policy. If, well, even if you took the politics it's not, out. It's not hard. There are answers. There are answers to these problems. You know, hire more immigration judges. There are smart ways to... Build a more secure border, smart ways, not political ways, not bumper sticker rallying cries. There are ways to address this. If you went to senior officials in CBP today, I'm sure they have in their desk drawer a smart border security plan. There are answers, but they're overly politicized and therefore unobtainable in the current environment. One of my reactions in watching the first Democratic debate where it seemed like everyone was trying to top each other on decriminalization was that smart immigration reform was going out the window and they were chasing their tail to the left. Well, that uh, was my reaction too, which yeah. is why I wrote a certain op-ed in the Washington Post. Yeah. Right? And it feels like by the second debate that had abated, but, you know, just putting your political analysis hat on, if um, whoever gets the nomination called you and says, how should I handle immigration? You can't do anything serious in this space without action by Congress. To get action by Congress, you need bipartisanship. To get bipartisanship, you need something for everybody that is reasonable. On the one hand, a secure border. On the other hand, treating people who are here fairly and in a humane way. And that, coincidentally, I believe, is largely public consensus around immigration. If you ask a lot of people in this country what they want, they say – we should treat the people who are here fairly, give the dreamers a chance to stay here, give people who've been here forever a chance to stay here, but we also want a secure border. And there's a lot of stuff in between those two things that we can do to fix the system. That's my 45 seconds. Okay. You got hired. As you pointed out, Joe, yeah. in the current environment, in the primary season, where everyone's trying to get the attention of people in the base, they don't want to hear compromise. Yeah, it is um, fascinating is when, when we do talk about the campaign here, how the polls show uh, that there is a you know progressive base in the Democratic Party, but the majority of the Democratic Party is looking for someone to solve the problem. The majority of voters. Of, of Democratic right. voters, yes. Right. The people with the loudest voices, you don't Are, necessarily exactly. hear that. Right? That's, voters. That, that's exactly and right. So I'm waiting for the candidate who says, look – I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you something and then walk it back for the general election. Here's how I think we need to fix this. And this involves political pain on both sides, but I know this will work. And I'm waiting for the candidate to say that. And I think a whole lot of other voters are. I, I agree with you. I'm going to switch uh, to, to our last area here. And in some ways, it's the most important, which is election security. We all have spent months and months and months going over the Mueller report and who did what and when and what did Trump know and what the Russians were doing. And I want to establish for our listeners that you're not a particularly political person. Uh, Secretary Gates, a Republican, in his book wrote about you this way. Jay Johnson proved to be the finest lawyer I've ever worked with in government, a straightforward, plain-speaking man of great integrity with common sense to burn and a good sense of humor, and that he, quote, trusted and respected him like no other lawyer I had ever worked with. Take us back to Friday, October 7th, 2016. What happened that day, and why is it important? A lot happened that day. A lot. First, this is not widely known. I briefed both the president and candidate Clinton and candidate Trump on the Hurricane Matthew relief efforts in Florida that day and had conversations with all three of them, probably before two o'clock. And about an hour and 20 minutes later, the director of national intelligence and I released our statement formally 
attributing the hacks of the DNC to the Russian government, not just a Russian platform, but the Russian government at the direction of the highest levels of the Russian government. And then a few minutes later, the Access Hollywood video was released. And a few minutes after that, John Podesta's emails were released. The result of which is that the press all kind of stampeded to the corner of the pasture that involved sex and lust and statements on a certain video. And our statement was literally below the fold in the New York Times and the Washington Post. So it did not get the attention that it deserved, frankly. And the media didn't really come back to that issue until December after Trump had been elected. And like, hey, the Russians interfered in our election. Yeah, we told you that October 7th. A lot of people say, well, why didn't you do it sooner? Any difficult decision, people will say, why did you do that? And others will say, why didn't you do it sooner? We were reluctant to jump into the campaign in national security, uh, rightfully. We were reluctant to see the national security intelligence apparatus of our government become involved in a campaign and be accused of taking sides in a campaign. And so we thought long and hard about it. But a number of us, including the president, felt strongly that we had to say something during the election. And it would be unforgivable to say nothing until after the election. And so we did. So the voters would at least be informed that there is a foreign actor with his thumb on the scale trying to influence the outcome. And we considered taking action by way of sanctions and other things before the election, concluded it would be better to wait until after. We took some steps, but over the last Almost three years now, it's really been on the current administration to take steps to prevent another effort at interference in our democracy. And I credit both the Congress and the current administration for doing a number of things by way of sanctions against the Russian government since they've been in office. Various officials of the Trump administration have stated in the most alarming terms the current threat, democracy is in the crosshairs. I'm concerned that the president himself has not done enough to convey a deterrent message to President Putin. And so most intelligence reports say that the threat to our democracy has not debated and um, there's much more to do there. Presumably before you release this report uh, to the public, you briefed – uh, congressional leadership. Tell us what you can about those meetings. Well, there's not much I can tell you about those meetings because they were for the most part classified. I will say that in describing the threat, several members of Congress were very emphatic that we tell the American people, which we eventually did. And others were, how shall I say, a little more uncertain, ambiguous about what we should do. Did Mitch McConnell say, no, don't do that? No, of course he didn't say that. You don't say that to the Secretary of Homeland Security and the Director of the FBI. Don't publicize what you know. But the reactions across the political spectrum in those briefings were, I'll say, mixed. 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 We'll draw our own conclusions there. You've had the benefit uh, now of some time and digesting the Mueller report. What surprised you? In what uh, former Director Mueller uh, His lack wrote. of a conclusion when it comes to obstruction of justice. That's what surprised me and disappointed me. After all of the time and effort put into that investigation and that report by some really bright lawyers, I was disappointed that Director Mueller did not come to a firm verdict on obstruction of justice. And for the life of me, I'm still unsure what he's trying to tell us. I don't know whether he's trying to tell us on the one hand, hey, tough call, maybe yes, maybe no. There are arguments for, there are arguments against, but I don't have to decide because the president can't be indicted. Or is he telling us that but for the policy, we would have charged the president with this crime? I don't know the answer to that question. And I read the Mueller report and my read was – my first interpretation, and then when he gave that statement at the press conference, it seemed to me he was saying, but for the policy, I would have indicted him. Uh, and then when I watched him testify before Congress, I was left still unsure. 
How about from the Russian interference point of view? The Russian interference point of view, I think the picture he painted is crystal clear. And he described in the... And, and how much of that did you know as you were leading government? They, they did a very good job in building the criminal case against the Russian entities and individuals of actually laying out in great detail the campaign to interfere in our election. And we were not in a position in 2016 to know all of that. With the benefit of two years' investigations and hindsight, they really put together a quite compelling picture of what the Russian government actually did. And so I learned a lot from that report and from those what we refer to as speaking indictments. Uh, we were just not in a position in 2016 to know all of that. And so the picture he painted there was quite clear. And I think Director Mueller himself emphasizes that when he, the few occasions he's talked about this. The president, um, as he's wont to do, has uh, very often pushed back on the Obama administration for not doing more and not saying more. Uh, are there things that you think? Well, that's, uh, that's kind of absurd because. Well, it's not kind of absurd. It is absurd. But I wanted you to say that. We were confronted with this problem in our waning days in office, the last few months of our administration. This has been his responsibility for almost three years now. It's on him to safeguard our democracy. Safeguarding our democracy is perhaps the second most important thing a president does behind safeguarding the physical safety of the American people. And so rather than blame somebody else or look for somebody else to blame for a problem that exists on your plate, perhaps the president and his government should spend their time, energy, focus on addressing the problem. Let me finish with a very basic question. I think every American should be asking, and I, I, I doubt very many are, but are you confident going into 2020 that no one has the ability to go in and change vote tallies and that our infrastructure of democracy is strong enough uh, that this election, beyond using social media and you know, sowing dissent, that that the Russians or the Chinese or some threat that we don't currently talk much about can go in and uh, undo the democratic will of the country. Joe, I don't make a practice, given all I know, of publicly spinning out possibilities that will will scare the pants off people. But I will say this, given the way our constitution is set up to require the vote of an electoral college, where in most states it's all or nothing. And given our politics, national elections are decided on the head of a pin. National elections are decided in a few key precincts in a few swing states. And we all know what they are. Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and a few others. And therefore, the results of a presidential election depend upon very few key places. And to disrupt that, one needs to focus only on a few key places, not a nationwide effort at altering the popular vote. I mean, you you and I know that together. So... That's the precarious situation we find ourselves in. That's not just a cybersecurity threat. That's a dilemma that we face in our democracy. Depending on where you live, most Americans, their vote for president doesn't matter. If you live in New York or California or, or Alabama, our vote doesn't matter. If you live in a swing state, your vote matters. And there are precincts in these swing states. There are congressional districts. There are districts. There are precincts where the outcome at a particular polling place matters immensely. We saw that in 2000 with the hanging chads. And so our national election is a very, very delicate thing. And that's not just a comment on cybersecurity. That's a comment on our democracy generally. So coming back to where we started, I think looking back on recent history, people will say September 11th unified and do the things that needed to be done to protect the homeland. What needs to happen to have that same consensus on election security and safeguarding our democracy? 
Well, it shouldn't require a crisis, but we did have a wake-up call, a crisis in 2016. And I have been fairly impressed with the response at the federal and state level in addressing election cybersecurity. When I took this matter up with state election officials in 2016, which was in the middle of a presidential campaign, I was met with a lot of resistance. I think that environment has changed over time, which is a good thing. And if you read the Senate Intelligence Committee report, they give DHS a lot of credit for working with states on addressing their election cybersecurity problems. And so I think we've made considerable progress in reaction to the 2016 infiltration, but there's a lot more to do. But my answer to your more general question is it shouldn't require a crisis to mobilize public opinion, mobilize our political leadership to take action. Bipartisanship can be achieved through a certain political environment, certain political climate, and there are not enough people in elective office right now who are willing to exercise the political courage to get there. Jay Johnson, you've scared us a little bit. I think you've reassured us a little bit. Uh, and we hope you'll come back and uh, talk to us again. Thank we you. appreciate it. Great discussion. Really interesting interview with Secretary Johnson. Joe, anything that surprised you? Yeah, I was surprised by how uh, worried he is about election security. Uh, I'd never really thought about it the way he did. I was thinking about it sort of how does someone attack the entire country, but he's right. They don't need to attack the entire country. They need to attack 40 or 50 precincts around the around the country, and that seems a lot easier and less daunting than um, attacking the entire United States electoral system. Uh, and so that's scary. I also was, I'm not sure surprised, but there was a, I think a palpable sense from him that the government is without leadership right now. And that's a big problem. We talked a little bit about it in various iterations and in various issues, but I kind of came away thinking that we may not be able to handle a crisis with Trump as president and our fingers need to be crossed that we can get through between now and election day and he is defeated. All right, Joe, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.